Hello and welcome to Moonshot, a show by Sequoia India and Southeast Asia that profiles innovative startups and inspiring founders who are dreaming big, making an impact, and driving change across the region. I'm your host, Dewi Fabri, and throughout this podcast, we'll be introducing you to founders and thought leaders who are helping shape the region's startup ecosystem. We hope this podcast will give you fresh ideas on how to start and scale an enduring company. Collaborating across teams within an organization can be a stressful process. Different people coming together with diverse preferences and skill sets, often using various tools and tech to reach distinct goals. This often makes it a slow and tedious process when teams have to collaborate on projects. In 2017, Prakalpa Sankar launched Atlin, a platform that's reinventing data management for the cloud era. Atlin brings data, people, and tools together to a single place helping teams collaborate easily. On this episode of Moonshot, we're joined by Prakalpa and Anandamoy Roy Chowdhury, or Roy as we call him, a principal at Sequoia India, to talk about what it takes to build a global SaaS brand from India. Roy, Prakalpa, welcome to Moonshot. First of all, Prakalpa, can you tell us about the genesis of Atlin and how does it solve the collaboration issue for data teams? So, I mean, a little bit of a backstory, right? So prior to this, my co-founder Varun and I, we had founded a company called Social Cops that did a lot of work in the data science for social good space. So we were like, you know, large problems like national healthcare, poverty alleviation. They didn't use data. It felt like they should. Uh, we said, let's go do something about that. And very quickly, our model sort of turned into that we became an extended data team for our customers. We were doing work with folks like the United Nations, the Gates Foundation, the World Bank. Obviously, they didn't have data teams or technology teams. And so we sort of just became their data team, which is really where Varun and I learned everything that we learned about building and running data teams and how complex and chaotic they can get. Because of the kind of work we were doing, we were dealing with a wide variety and scale of data. At one point, we were processing data for over 500 million Indian citizens, billions of pixels of satellite imagery a day. All sounds really cool. Uh, But the reality for us as data leaders was, I mean, it was a nightmare. Like, I feel like as a data leader, I have seen it all. I have had cabinet ministers call me at eight in the morning and say, Prakalpa, the number on this dashboard is broken. And, you know, like I like scramble to like, you know, you know, open up my laptop, realize like something's clearly off and not know how to answer it. Right. And so I've like called my project manager, who calls my analyst, who calls my engineer, like takes us eight hours, four people to figure out what went wrong. I have sat on the top of our terrace and cried for three hours because an analyst quit on me uh, exactly a week before a really important project was due. And he was the only one who knew everything about the data. And I was like, how am I going to deliver this project to my clients? Doubled our team this one quarter, thought it would solve all our problems, uh, only to realize at the end of the quarter that actually our productivity had dipped significantly and we were way worse off than we were when we actually started. The unique thing about data teams is that they're very interdisciplinary. To make a data project successful, you need an analyst, an engineer, a scientist, a business, like 22 different kinds of personas that need to sort of come together and collaborate effectively. But each of these people had their own tooling preferences and their skill sets and their limitations, almost their own DNA in the way that they were working. And so we sort of hit this breaking point as a team ourselves and we were like, we couldn't continue to scale like that. And so we actually started an internal project for ourselves to make our team more agile and effective. 
Over a couple of years, we built tooling that made our team over six times more agile. And that's sort of when we realized that, you know, hey, we've probably built something that could help data teams around the world. Data teams were starting to become a function inside organizations. Uh, and so we said, hey, like, you know, can we help you know, every data team in the world to become maybe just, you know, you know, 25, 30% more agile, right? Like, what could we do with the world uh, if we were able to do that? And that's basically how Atlan was born. The high level in us, we sort of see ourselves as a collaborative workspace for a modern data team. Uh, every time there's a function in an organization, right? Uh, a, you know, engineering team has a GitHub, a sales team has a Salesforce. As a data team starts becoming a function inside an organization, we're trying to say, how do we build that collaborative layer, knowing that the only reality in this ecosystem is going to be diversity of the kinds of people in this team. Right. So how did you, like, how does Atlin solve for that? Do you bring them all on a single layer? Like, how do these different teams talk to each other? Um, and how do they access each other's data? You know, just a little bit about the product. We basically sit on top of essentially existing data tooling. So this is typically like data warehouses like Snowflake, BI tools like Looker or Tableau, your ETL um, and your modeling tools like DBT. Uh, and what we do is we, you know, the entire product is sort of built on this prem premise that we call a data asset. Uh, so the way we think about a data asset, it used to be just your data, right? It used to be just your tables, but it's not just your data anymore, right? It's your code, your models, your BI dashboards, your, you know, DAGs, your pipelines. All of these are data assets and should be treated and maintained like a data asset. And so around these data assets, what Atlin does is we create this layer that we almost call a data asset profile. So think of the best analogy is what a GitHub code repo is, right? When you onboard an engineer, you just share a link to a GitHub repo. It has your code, your documentation, your revisions, everything in the same space, right? It's almost your single source of truth for your code. Uh, and so we've said, hey, like, if we had to create a similar kind of single source of truth for your data assets, right? Like the questions that users are asking are things like, where does this data come from? You know, who else is using this data? Can I trust this? You know, what does this column name actually mean? Uh, we've been, you know, the interesting thing about data though is that like, all of that truth is actually very dispersed. The truth about who's using it is in the BI tool. The truth about where it's coming from is in the ETL. And so what we've done is we've basically built a platform that integrates into essentially all of your different tools, creates this, I guess, proverbial single source of truth data asset profile, which gives 360 visibility into your ecosystem. And around that, we've basically built a ecosystem that we almost call embedded collaboration, right? So when I request access to a data asset, it should be as simple as someone getting a message on Slack, approve, reject. Um, or, you know, when I'm, you know, in flow, I should be able to, every, every data asset in Atlan has a unique URL, a unique hashtag, which makes it referenceable. I can basically bring that same data asset into a BI tool like Looker. I can reference it in environments like Slack. I can create a Jira issue using it. So we basically tried to say, let's look at all of the tools that users are using. And if we had to create the ideal user experience for these diverse teams where they have uh, 360 visibility, trust, transparency, and collaboration. How do we sort of build that in? So it's almost like you've taken the hassle um, out of collaboration and made it efficient uh, for teams to work together. So Roy, what excited you about Atlan's mission and how do you see the space shaping up in India and globally? It's a very good question, Lady. And I think, you know, when we first intersected with Atlan uh, with Kalpa and Varun, uh, you know, we had essentially, you know, it was clear to us that there were two major trends, right? The first trend is, of course, the rise of big data, right? We've basically seen how the big data ecosystem sort of evolved and how, you know, how big data was exploding in organizations. 
So when you combine that fact with the fact that, you know, as modern marketing start to work with data, uh, the inevitable need for collaboration tools was going to arise. Now, unlike most other founders, you know, we, we saw a very strong founder market fit in this case, which is because both Varun and Pukalpa had essentially been trying to solve this problem for themselves for the last eight years. The solution they had built uh, was perhaps the most slickest demo that we had ever seen, right? And so it was very clear to us that the founders really got it in terms of the problem. Uh, they had lived the problem for many years themselves, and so the solution uh, that they were building was very authentic uh, and had a very high degree of success in our view. So Prakabha, one of the things that really stood out for me and uh, was one of the big reasons why we chose to partner with you uh, is the concept of founder market fit. I mean, I think it it shaped everything that we do today as a as a company, right? Uh, we talk about this a lot. We actually have this slide when we talk to customers. We we say that like it's called a ma it's a manifesto slide. It's a very rare thing I think that people have and like you know <laughs> when you're pitching to a customer. But our manifesto literally says we want to be the kind of company that we wished we could have partnered with as a data team ourselves. Um, and in some ways, I think that drives all our decisions, right? Like it drives our product decisions, it drives our uh, it drives our business decisions. The way we think about pricing, the way we think about, like, so for example, we're a very value led, adoption based pricing model. Because when we were a data team ourselves, like that was the kind of partner we wanted, right? Like we wanted a partner that could actually tie themselves to the success that we had. And unfortunately, we found that in the market, actually, most people were like million dollar licensing fees, like it's going to take 18 months implementation. And that was just not the kind of partner we wanted. And I think, um, you know, everything we do I, very early on, um, it's a lot easier for us to like explain what we do today because, you know, the market has heated up and like Gartner's coined a term called data ops and all of those things. But like when we started, it was really hard to like tell people that like, here's a problem. We think there's a problem. We know it's a problem. We want to solve it. And people used to asked me back then, like, what was, what is your competitive advantage? Like, how, like, what is your real competitive advantage? And, and this was before we had a product or anything like that. And I used to tell our team that, like, our biggest competitive advantage is empathy. Like, we have been this data team. We have been that data leader. Like, I have been that data leader that has gotten that call at, like, eight in the morning, right? Um, and, you know, we, I think that gave us empathy for the day-to-day -day struggle that data practitioners face uh, and allowed us to build products with a lot of love for, for that target audience in some ways. Um, and I think even today, in a lot of ways, I think it, it still continues to be one of our biggest competitive advantages, right? Like, you know, as the space heats up and things like that. But the very fact that we built this tool internally for ourselves and we lived this problem for years before we actually, um, you know, Atlin was never supposed to be a product we sold to anybody. Like, it was just like, we just built it for ourselves. Uh, and I think that gives us empathy in a way that almost any, no one else, you can't recreate that in, um, in any other way. You know, it is interesting, right? Because again, uh, you know, you can very easily run into this uh, trap of saying, hey, because we've lived this problem for as long as we have, uh, we actually know what the solution should look like. And, uh, and you know, you can be right for a very long part of that, for a very, very long time, just on the back of that. So while I think it's easy to back your empathy, what has also been very striking of this journey that uh, Kalpa and Atlin and Varun are taking has been the fact that they are also fairly data driven in their approach around things like you know which are the you know which features to build, which customers to go after, 
you know, what's the right sort of uh, profile uh, for folks that sort of, you know, can succeed. So I think all that stuff plays out really well. Uh, and I think, uh, you should talk a little bit about just, you know, how you use data in sort of in different aspects of your company building. But I think that, you know, you guys are amongst the best I've seen in terms of being very, very driven. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for us, it actually just came down to like personal conviction. Uh, and I think that's the thing that like, you know, many people think about data as a way to like convince other people, right? Like convince the VC, convince like, you know, and I think for us, it was, you know, it was very much, we needed to build like personal conviction. And I think that sort of comes from our roots, right? Because for us actually making a decision to like take an internal product when we were running a pretty successful company uh, and saying, we're going to like completely change and like start at zero to one again was, it was actually a really big decision. So, I mean, the time that we said like, hey, like, you know, is this a problem we can solve for other data teams around the world? The first question we had to ask ourselves was like, but is this a problem that other data teams around the world face too, right? And so I remember even before we wrote a single line of code, we actually did like about 150 interviews or something like that of like practitioners. So we started with users because our biggest thesis going into this was that we felt like the buyers probably are not going to get it, but the users are going to get it. And we felt like our entire thesis was around like the amazing user experience we wanted to build for the humans of data, as we call our, our users at Atlin. Um, and so we basically ran these like humans of data interviews, interviewed like 150 users around the world, like right from like global big tech companies to like, you know, relatively early stage startups, uh, open-ended interviews, just trying to understand like what are the top three problems in your day. And I think that gave us conviction because we constantly found that even with zero prompts, like we were not actually telling them what we, I mean, we, we didn't know what we were doing back then, right? Like, so we, it was just like, they didn't even have a product or anything they can reference to, but we consistently found that actually one of the top three problems that data practitioners were talking about was problems that we faced ourselves as a team. And so I think that gave us conviction, Hey, this is a global problem. This is a top of mind problem. And this is a problem everybody are like, you know, literally everybody around the world faces. I think from there, we actually doubled down like and, and said, okay, now we want to like figure out like how to solve the problem. And so actually for a while, we actually just went back like buildings. So we found one customer we want to go really deep with. We thought that they met a lot of our criterias and we just wanted to get the like amazing user experience, natural user love. We felt that was what was really missing. So we sort of just went back a little bit into that phase of just building and trying to like figure out how to solve that problem. Um, and we started getting to success there, right? Like, so I think we we sort of got to this point where like, I think they went from 100 users to 500 users organically on the product in six months. Like Atlin has like a lot of natural sharing collaboration kind of elements. And so we started being able to see the real value we were able to create. Like I think they shipped 100 more data projects that quarter than they had the previous quarter. So we saw some of that. Um, and that's when we said, okay, now we have to figure out like market. Like, you know, we sort of did the user uh, the user problem fit. And now we were like, okay, now let's think about market. And the unique thing about Atlin was we are a horizontal product and that's a blessing. It's a great market. It's a, it's a really huge opportunity. We can essentially at some point really dream about like helping every company in the world, but it's also a curse because you can basically sell to everybody, right? Like you can sell to like large companies, small companies, like every industry, like financial services, healthcare, and like big tech. Right. And so, it was really important for us to like figure out, okay, how do we focus and how do we, how do we sort of build repeatability in that journey of product market fit? And the thing that 
I hated the most was that almost everything else in the world other than like this journey of zero to one product market fit is a relatively linear journey. You can control it. Meaning that like if you make sort of the right decisions and you uh, put in the right inputs, if you work hard enough, it's likely that it will be proportional to your outputs. Uh, in Product market fit is not that. You could make all the right decisions. You could you know, do all the right things. You could put in all the right effort and you can still end up not getting to product market fit. And so that sort of just like bugged us like a lot, right? Like it, like it, <laughs> we were like, this is, there has to be a better way to get to get like, they ha- like it can't just be like, it just happened. Like, and, and you know, you hear like these startup stories all the time, right? Like it just happened. Like we just built this thing and like, it just worked. Uh, we suddenly got to adoption, like, and that, you know, that's great. It's great for founders who just suddenly got to adoption, but it's also kind of like annoying because like, you know, then like there's no real path to like get there. Um, and so we decided to like be pretty data driven in the way that we did customer discovery. So we literally like, and this is like small data, this is not actually big data. And I think what people really miss out is that you can actually get a ton of insights from small data. So I think this was right after like we partnered with Surge and I think we went through this and like, I think COVID was just like about a hit and like all of that. And like we went through this phase where we personally, I think, interviewed about 200, 300 buyers um, globally. And we marked them into like every segment we could, right? To basically like uh, by demographics, by industry, by company size, by data persona, by um, uh, technographics, like what are the kind of tooling they're using internally. And we tried to sort of, get signals from that right like where was where were customers again we took a very non-product driven approach our first call was just an interview like we almost expect like it was almost an experiment like we were just trying to like get the truth uh we didn't want people to tell us just because they liked us that like oh this is a great product we, we really want to know like are they going to like buy like where's the biggest urgency what's going to be the quickest way for us to grow uh, things like that and i think that gave us almost a map right like we were able to say green, red, yellows, this is where like there's maximum pain and this is where there's maximum like speed or velocity that we can grow with. And I think that helped us sort of again get conviction to say this is the segments we want to go after and this is the segments we're going to completely say no to. Uh, And in fact, it turned out to be something very different from like what the market actually uses to define their industry segments. Like it it was not industry, it was not demographics, it was not all the questions uh, that like normal people use to like figure out their segment. But I think that helped us get to our ICP a lot faster and with like a lot more conviction. It's very interesting interesting actually, uh, you know, uh, to recount that journey, I think, uh, two things that point to sort of how strong you are. One is almost no other company or no other founder has ever complained about finding product market fit. Uh, <laughs> but the fact that you guys were like constantly annoyed by the fact that that required just more serendipity and less uh, process and execution was very interesting. Uh, but I think the second thing, and let just talk about this a little bit because this is something everyone struggles with, right? Uh, but the decision that you made uh, during search to actually cut down the number of features that you have, right? So you, you know, we basically went from spotting a few different backends to being like, hey, we're going snowflake only. Very difficult decision for a company to make. Typically, people are terrified of sort of, you know, they always feel like they're cutting down dam when they do that. Uh, and so, you know, very few companies are able to pull that off. And you did. 
So talk us to that a little bit and also, you know, did that work for you guys? Like, you know, I mean, I know the answer to that, but I'd love to hear it from you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, it worked out, right? And it's 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 easy to look back at these decisions in retrospect and be like, yes, we made like this, the right decision back then. But it was actually a really hard decision to make. Like, for example, like we, our second customer that was about to sign a contract, again, like great logo. Um, they basically said, hey, we want you to like support these on-prem sources. And uh, it wasn't a lot of work. Like it was probably going to be like, maybe two or three weeks of like engineering effort for us, second contract, really hard decision for like a company to make, you know, we were in the middle of COVID at that point, right? Like, so I think there, I think a few premises have helped us a lot. I think the first premise is the fundamental, like, what are you playing for? So for example, in Varun in my case, uh, and this comes down to like literally the time we founded Atlan, right? Like it was it was a very simple decision. Like it was for us, it was like either we play big or we or we shut down. Like we know that there are only two outcomes that we can get out of this journey. We did not want to build a company that grew linearly uh, because we, you know, again that was it was a very big decision for us to take a company that was really successful and like was growing very fast and like you know uh, like so when when we decided to. Act, through Atlin, we were driven by this idea of impact in some ways, right? And at Social Clubs, we actually drove a lot of impact. Like we could, we built India's national data platform. Like, you know, we we were a company that could say that in five years, we had impacted the lives of at least a hundred million people and maybe a billion people. Like very, very few companies can say that. Um, and so for us, it was like, we could continue to do that. And, you know, we could maybe like 10 years out, we could grow like a McKinsey, grow two to three X year on year, but like, you know, basically powered like what, 10, 20 national data platforms around the world. And so for us, the decision came down to like almost this amazing beauty of software. Like it's like this purest goal of software where software is almost the one only thing in the world that allows you to actually build something that everyone in the world uses. Like it's it's a very rare thing in the world, uh, right? And so, you know, you can, like Slack is a great example, like something I'm personally very driven by. Like if you saw when NASA sent up the Mars rover, there's this picture in command center where uh, like they're actually collaborating on Slack when that happens. And that's beautiful, right? Like in five years, there's a company like 600,000 organizations in the world use that company. Like I probably will say like a part of our success at you know, at, at Atlin or before in social cops had Slack had something to do with it. And like, you know, NASA is using it. Like, and so, you know, I think that became the goal for us. And so with that, when you know that that's the goal, like that's what you're playing for, right? Like the reason we did all of this was because we said, hey, data teams are going to become really mainstream in the org fabric. Um, we think that like every amazing thing in the world in the next decade is going to be driven by your data team. Uh, we want to power those data teams. We want to be the icon on the desktop. And so then if you want to play that game, you have to hit scale. Like you can't like, you know, you have, you can't grow linearly. So for us, it sort of, it was, we wanted to build something that every data team in the world uses, right? Like we, it was very clear to us that, you know, every amazing thing in the world, like in the next decade, like maybe a cure to cancer, man on Mars, like self-driving cars, they'll all have an amazing data team behind them. And we wanted to be the icon on the desktop. Like that was our definition of impact. Uh, and so if you want to be that, then you have to play for scale, right? You can't play a linear game. Uh, you can't say I'm going to grow like 2x year on year. So it was it was a game, like we, it was really important for us to like build 
for scale. And so I think that premise helps a lot. So every time we have really hard questions where Varun and I talk about it, like it's, we're like, okay, it's all right. It's okay if we fail. It's really okay. Uh, you know, we're, we're only doing this to play for that outcome. And if we don't hit that outcome, it's also okay. Like we know we'll fail, but at least we went after like something that was really big and we failed, right? And so I think being comfortable with that failure in some ways, like in our head saying that like, even if we win this short game, we get like a few more customers, we get a few more logos, it won't help us win long term. And it's not like, and so it's okay to make a long term bet versus a short term bet, like just getting comfortable with it yourselves. Uh, I think that helped a lot. Um, and I think from there, the thing is like, I don't think that's enough. Then you have to get conviction, right? Like, you know, at the end of the day, as a founder, you need conviction to make really hard decisions. And so for us, we get convictions from like signals in the market. We get conviction by talking to users. And so I think that's where that whole, uh, you know, market customer discovery exercise where you're constantly talking to users, but you're also not just talking to users and like trying to get intuition from it, but like you're actually looking at data and saying, okay, like I feel like we can make a relatively, you know, I guess we have a bet here that is based on some data. And so maybe our data is wrong or our premise is wrong, but at least at this point, we're making the best decision that we can. In retrospect, it gave us that like conviction to say, okay, no, we're not going to go after just like winning a few logos. We're going to make a decision to just go cloud first, cloud native. We're just going to go after at that point, like we actually, we said like, we're not going to do Microsoft Azure. We're just going to do like AWS and Snowflake. Uh, and that cut down our number of customers, like the number of customers we could win short term, right? In our pipeline, but gave us a lot of focus to build product for that market. And then, you know, I think that, you know, once we launched, um, it sort of gave us like that, that growth that we needed in some ways. I was fortunate, I was fortunate to be sort of, sort of, you know, a little bit actually be part of that journey. Uh, it, it was hard, right? right? To call this point, which is that, you know, the, the second, second customer that showed up, I mean, for people listening, uh, you know, the team entered search with one customer that would have been a hundred percent increase in the customer base, right? And so, uh, while it sounds very sort of easy in retrospect, it was an incredibly hard decision. And I was struck by the fact that, uh, you know, the team led by Kalaka was able to come that relatively quickly. Uh, it, didn't make, it wasn't a snap decision. And it was definitely a tough one, but it was made relatively quickly. And then this, the whole team's lined up behind that. And I think that's the next question for me, which is, you know, again, in startups, right? It's the mission, it's the, you know, the call to action that's, that's really important. And when you companies do this as well as you guys do, which is like, you know, really fall behind uh, a specific sort of thing that you're going after. Talk to us a little bit about that, right? Which is this, you know, how do you sort of, how do you get your, how do you get your teams to respond to your call? Sure. Um, I mean, I think the one thing I also want to add on, like with these hard decisions, I think it's really important to have people around you that sort of support you to make these hard calls, right? And so, I mean, I remember like back then, like, I mean, like Roy, you were super helpful, right? Like to, to me, like when I would go and like, you know, I'm like, we're thinking about doing this. And you were like, yeah, sure. That's the right decision. It makes sense long-term. And I think that like for like helped a lot in some ways, right? Like just to like help us make those those difficult calls and not like create doubt in some ways on like, let's play for short term uh, and things like that. I think when it comes to call to action, like I think clarity is important. Uh, and I think it's really important to 
communicate that clarity to to your teams in some ways right and so i think for us we've tried to always be really intellectually honest with our teams i think that helps so for example like every town hall we do every quarter we start with this slide and it literally it talks about like the stages that a company goes through like so you know problem solution fit pro- product market fit go to market fit uh you know hundreds of customers thousands of customers like exponential growth and like we have this like last thing which is icon on the desktop for like all data teams in the world and we we know like we've sort of mapped those phases right and so every time we go in to talk to the teams we're like this is the phase we're in this is what we've learned this is why we're making this decision uh and i think that helps a lot so for example like when we made this like really big decision around covid like you know say hey covid's happened varun and i started with like this premise of like what what do we believe about the world so this has happened it's changed the world for sure what is this going to do so what are the opportunities it's going to create what are the threats it's going to create what is like for us what are the strengths we have what are the weaknesses we have here's what we should do and i think we start every year now planning like that so uh you know when we start every year we're like this is the thesis we think this is going and it's like these abstract things like we believe this is going to happen in the data world we believe we're going to move to a multi cloud environment like we start with those theses in some ways and we agree on the thesis and that helps a lot because once you agree on the thesis like i mean you could be wrong about your thesis sure but then you know you know that you're making a decision based on a thesis that you're expecting the world to go into and we share this with our teams like we're like this is what like this is what we think is happening in the world this is why we're choosing to focus on this and not this uh this is what and and this is why we think this is what we should like plan for in the next sort of 3 6 9 months um and i think that helps a lot i think telling stories as well on like how you get to the decision is as important around telling the story about what the future is going to be uh and i we found that that's been a helpful way to like catalyze people towards the towards action so Yeah, Pukkabu. So coming back to the, you know, the, you know, that Snowflake decision, and you know, it was a, it was a tough one, as you pointed out. You know, given that you only had one customer at the time, what I mean, apart from the fact that yes, we spoke to a bunch of people and we got comfort. Uh, were there other signals that you sort of used to figure out that that was a uh, because again, the investment at your end was pretty significant, right? Like it wasn't just a oh, we will have one backend to support. We essentially retooled a large part of the product to work uh, very well in the Snowflake context, right? So talk to us a little bit about that as well which is you know once you made that high level decision how do you sort of how did you double down and how did you get again the troops to sort of you know line up behind you on that So I mean obviously like I think there's also like some amount of like just market signals right like how like if you're making a bet on a technology is the technology growing fast uh and believe it or not it wasn't that easy to like say that snowflake's growing that fast just even like 2 years ago than it <laughs> than it is today um and and so i think there was some amount of just like market signaling on uh on like you know is this a technology we can bet on for the future uh and do we believe that this is going to grow i think that so i think some like overall market dynamics um uh, is it is this big enough for us to go after and focus on some of it was uh was definitely customer signals so you know i think customer signals like we will buy this product if it supports snowflake is always a great 
it's always a great thing to have, right? And I think we tried to sign some of that in advance, right? So we, we in fact, even before we launched our, our, you know, the newer version of our product with Snowflake in it, like we actually had, I think, about like 14 POCs or something like that lined up, right? And so I think that, again, like gives you more conviction that, okay, this it, it does make sense because like there is demand. Um, and so I think, some of that, right? Like, so you, you just constantly execute, like you, you make, we made a high level decision. I think it's also important to be okay to like reverse your decisions, right? And so we made a high level decision. We said, okay, we're re-architecting the product. We're, we're going after cloud first, cloud native. We think we should bet on Snowflake first. But I think then we went and tested that in the market uh, to say, you know, and, and we got signals to say, okay, it is making sense. There is growth here. There is demand here. Uh, and you know, so let's let's go back, and it's okay to like focus like these many months of engineering effort just on this, right? And I think that was the. So I think that constant feedback loop is important. I think what people miss out a lot is that you make a decision and then you stick to it, uh, which is good in some cases. But I think it's really important to continue to keep reinforcing and saying, "Are you making the right decision?" So I think that paranoia of are we making the right decision in some ways and just getting enough signals constantly to reinforce whether it was the right decision or sometimes if it was the wrong decision, you go back on that decision, right? Like, and say, we don't want to do this anymore. So for example, like our, we started with cloud first, cloud native and, you know, uh, you know, Azure is a very strong part of cloud first, cloud native. Like there's no reason to like not support it. Like, uh, but like, you know, I think about like, and we built some of that about, um, I think like three months in, we realized, hey, like we have just like a lot more traction coming in, in like the AWS first ecosystem. Let's not like create more engineering complexity by going multi-cloud. Uh, and the reason for that was because we were like, hey, that's a solvable engineering problem. So I think I'd read a tweet the other day, right? Which is you have to, in the early days, solve the problems that are most likely to have, the hardest problems that are most likely to have long-term company failure. Uh, building a multi-cloud ecosystem is an engineering, it's not a, it's an engineering resource and time problem. It's not a, it's not something that will lead to company failure, like, right? Uh, versus like, can you get like product market fit? Can you get, you know, adoption in end users? Like those are problems that are a lot more important to solve to actually get to that longer term uh, you know, that, that can actually derail the company. And so I think reducing complexity in early days to focus on the problems that uh, are most likely to make you fail long term is probably a, um, a good judgment call that we started making um, in the company. You know, that's very profound advice, right? Because, you know, again, we see a lot of startups struggle with this one, which is, you know, people like building product or they, you know, they come from engineering backgrounds, they like building code. Uh, and so a lot of people will default to building and not enough folks think about it strategically like you just articulated, which is, you know, what's likely to kill you uh, versus, versus what is likely an engineering and resource problem and can be solved later. And using that as a framework to prioritize is, is a very interesting, and I think a very profound framework for folks to sort of take away. Uh, I think just continuing on the vein of that, Prakalpa, I think what was again very interesting about Atlan and is very interesting about Atlan is that, you know, we've seen, you know, you've seen very successful SaaS companies in India, uh, but they are typically tend to play in slightly better, well-defined categories, right? Uh, in many ways, you are in a category creation exercise. You're also remote. Uh, you know, you're, you, you guys started in India, based in India, all of that. Uh, you know, most of your current customer base is in North America. 
but you also had to build a global and sort of remote organization, right? So just talk us through some of those challenges, right? And like, you know, what what are some of the lessons from there that you think other SaaS companies that are following your footsteps would like, you know, would would benefit from hearing from your experience? I think your early customers make a really, really profound impact on your roadmap. I think that's, it would have been easier for us to get. Like, I mean, we had networks, relationships. I had personally sold into like, you know, in, into Asia for about eight years. Like, uh, I think it would have been a lot easier for us to get to our first 10, 20 customers, you know, just off relationships. Uh, and Funnily enough, I think for us, we actually didn't want to get to our first 10 or 20 customers off relationships. Uh, it was actually really important for us that like people buy the product in the like for like, again, this goes back to that intellectual truth thing, right? Like we could game it. Like I could like, you know, honestly, I, I think most founders, right? Like just most founders can game their way to like two or five million dollars in revenue. Like you just find the right people, get the right connections, like you know, just like be really passionate, <laughs> you know, mostly you can get there. Uh, but that's when it like, it, that doesn't work anymore, right? Because you've not actually built repeatability. You've not really built engine. You've just gamed your way in some ways. And so for us, it was really important that we go after the customers that can help us build to our vision. Uh, we can, uh, we were in a very early market. So our, it was important that our customers don't push us in the wrong direction from a roadmap perspective. Um, and I think it was like going back to that thesis, like we built this company to be like the icon on the desktop for every data team in the world. And so then like, why would you play for a short term? Let me get to like 10 customers more easily in three months. Like three months is not a, we don't measure ourselves on three months. Uh, so set, you know, the reality is 60, 70, like data maturity in the US is far higher than it is in any other place in the world. We were building for the cutting edge of data teams. The cutting edge of those data teams existed in North America, mostly, uh, uh, and and all the others like use Atlin today in the rest of the world. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, and and so it was really important for us that like we go and partner with them, and so that meant we were building a global company from day zero, uh, and that was very clear and apparent in what we did. And we weren't the the like we also not even today we're not the stereotypical company in our space, right? Like most companies in our space have come from like Fang you know, classic Silicon Valley roots, uh, you know, and, and like built an internal tool in one of those companies. And they like, you know, they decided like they're, they're going to like build a, uh, uh, like build a company out of it, right? Like that's the classic stereotypical, uh, you know, company in our space. And so we knew that we were in the classic stereotypical company. And when you know that you're not the classic stereotypical company, then you have to actually prove through your work uh, that you can be the cutting edge, you can be the best you can build the best user experience. Uh, and so that translated into everything that we did. Like, for example, when we did our Atlin brand, the first time we did our Atlin brand, like we spent a ton of time, energy and effort in making that brand stand out. Like our day zero was when we built our website was like, what is the best SaaS website in the world? Uh, it was Stripe in our minds. Uh, and we said like, we want to get as good as Stripe. And we didn't get them. We were we, like, you know, we're, we're still very far away from that. But I think it got us much further along than most companies our size and scale would have. And I think that translated into everything that we did, right? Like, you know, the the product, like the fact that quality needed to be at a certain bar for us to be able to do it. In some ways, like we are breaking so many stereotypes of the kind of company, like 
about the, the places that companies like ours can be built out of. Uh, and so that means everybody needs to go 10x. Everybody needs to hit that level of quality bar in some ways. Uh, it, in fact, it's harder for us than I think it is for the stereotypical companies in some ways because we have to break biases as well along the way, right? Um, and I think just keeping that in mind, like knowing that that's, that's the bar uh, and that we have to work really like way harder, uh, you know, and unfortunately that's just the way the world works. And, you know, is it fair? Is it not fair? Like we can go into those conversations, but like, you know, that's just the way the world works. And so if you want to win, you do what it takes to to go and prove and luckily like you know I think customers uh, for them ultimately what matters is you know what is the best product and what is the best team and are they going to be able to solve that and I think that sort of helped us sort of uh, drive that and so it, for us it was actually a very simple decision that to, to be global from day zero the challenges with that comes from uh, really upping the bar so you know I think internally from a talent perspective internally from like a uh, just like the benchmark of what what is okay at Atlin. And sometimes it's not about even what the customers expect or what the market expects. It's who are we as a company? Like we have these values, like we, we have a value called never be satisfied. And that means like, it means we're going to spend that extra 30 minutes before a presentation and make the font, make the fonts perfect. Uh, and that matters to us as a company. Maybe it doesn't matter to many other companies, but to us it matters as a company. And so being able to hire and build for that culture um, has been really, really important to us uh, in that journey. No, I can definitely, uh, I can definitely vouch for the fact that you know, Prokalpa and Atlin are always the best prepared in the room for any conversation. In any introduction that we've made, or in any conversation, or even in interviews, I know Prokalpa asked me to uh, shadow her in some interviews. And just the level of prep, the level of uh, detail, uh, is so much ahead of companies of a similar size and scale that. Uh, you know, sometimes it becomes very clear uh, why you why Atlin, you know, deserves to sort of win this space. Prokalpa, you've demonstrated a tremendous amount of grit and resilience in building Atlin. If you had to pick just one important piece of advice for an aspiring founder, what would it be? Build for yourself, I think, is my advice. Uh, it's very easy to build for everybody else. Uh, what I mean by that is in this market, like, you know, I am trying to hit the next milestone. I'm trying to get the next fundraise. I am trying to impress this VC. I'm trying to impress this customer. I think what founders miss out is that if you want to build a company, you are dedicating the next decade of your life to building a company. And there is a serious opportunity cost that comes with that. You might not realize it now because in the early days, everything is exciting, but it's not going to be in that journey that you have to take. Uh, and so if you have to, at the end of the day, you have to have enough conviction to be able to take that journey. And it's different for different people, right? Like, I mean, the reality is that I, I think, again, like it's very easy to get caught up in hype, right? Like, oh, like, you know, we want to be a unicorn. But, you know, it's not, that's not the right path for everybody. It's not the right path for every founder as well, right? Like you could build a fantastic company without raising any venture money ever. You could like... At the end of the day, you are the one who's going and building this. You are dedicating your life to this. Like, why are you building for everybody else? Like, build for yourself. Get conviction in who you want to be. Get conviction in what will make you happy. 10, 15 years out, like, what will what will make you feel, feel happy? And whatever, however you define happiness, right? Like, that's for you. And then, like, work backwards from there and, like, build a company for that. Uh, and, you know, 
I, I think that is the the one thing that is that I think founders lose a lot. You know, you go to Stanford MBA, like your life is set after that. Like it, you don't have to like really like you. There's very little chances you'll fail. You know, in a traditional path, in a startup, failure is a very real part of that journey. There's serious opportunity cost to that journey, and so if you're doing it for anyone who's not yourself. Um, and you're not like you're not optimizing for that. I think it's it's gonna get hard. Maybe it's not gonna get hard early on, but it's gonna get hard at some point. Prakalpa, that was really insightful. Roy, based on your experience working with uh, the team at Atlin, what are three things that they did that's key for aspiring founders to do if they're eager to build a global SaaS company? So three things. I think the first one would be just you know just to really uh, you know just to borrow from what Prakalpa was saying. Your conviction has to be very real, and it has to be based off some deep sort of understanding that you have of the problem state, right? And uh, I also agree with like you know while it's very right now it's very cool to do startups, and so you know lots of folks are doing startups, and you know there are certain kinds of startups that lend themselves well to you know building things according to your own taste. Uh, SaaS is rarely like that, right? And so to the degree that you have real sort of you know, ask yourself, always ask yourself the questions that, you know, what is my founder market fit here, right? Uh, and I think that, you know, what the Atlin team has demonstrated is that founder market fit is very important. And I would urge people to sort of, you know, go after problems that they have spent a lot of time thinking about and have some deep insights in that space. So I, I would say that that's one. I think the second learning from uh, Atlin that I wish everybody adopted was just, you know, just sheer doggedness, right? Like, you know, uh, I, I've never seen Prakalpa take a, uh, you know, take a simple decision, right? For everything, uh, you know, she's trying to find out everything she can, trying to go as deep as she can into the ramifications, uh, you know, asking what other folks are doing, always benchmarking against, you know, what's best out there. Uh, I think it, you need that, you need that kind of commitment to excellence and, and uh, not accepting mediocrity in any, sort of shape or form in anything that you do. Uh, and if you can keep that going for a while, that compounds, I think, very nicely over a period of time and can help you build a very, very interesting company. And I think the third thing is just, you know, just bring your people along, right? Again, you know, people who don't communicate well in, you know, there's always this thing that, oh, you know, VCs really expect you to pitch very well and things of that nature. But the reality is that if you don't pitch well, then chances are that you will not pitch your own people well either, right? And so, you know, storytelling, the ability to explain to people why they're on this journey, why they should do it, why this is the best use of their time, you know, versus the 900 other things they could be doing uh, is a very critical aspect now of company building, right? Uh, the flip side of it being very easy to start up is that everybody does. And so, you know, you really have to keep your team together. You have to keep them excited. You have to keep them on the journey you know, hopefully it's 10 years. We've seen companies take much longer as well. And, you know, and that's and that's rewarding too, right? And so it's not really a time journey as much as it is a journey of sort of, you know, uh, of sort of outcome and achievement, right? And so you want to climb the mountain and not worry about how long it took. And so, you know, the ability to sort of take people along is a very critical thing. And Atlin does that really well. And I wish for all of you out there, you should just learn from how they do it and, you know, adopt some of, and steal and adopt some of those best practices for yourself. Roy Prokalpa, thank you so much for sharing those profound takeaways for founders um, and for a riveting chat on developing conviction as a founder and Atlin's quest to build a global SaaS company. 
I'm Dewi Fabri, and you've been watching Moonshot. For more interesting startup stories, visit us on our website, sequoiacap.com, or follow us on your favorite podcast channel.